Alright, so we are going to try to get through four verse, or eight verses this morning. It's going to be, we'll be hard pressed to do that. So we are in Revelation chapter 6. And we're beginning the um, prophetic portion of Revelation. Actually, we're going to back up. Um, I want to back up just briefly uh, for one verse here. Um, I want to go to chapter 4, verse 5, and kind of set up the structure um, of, of what we're going to be going through. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, he says, um, From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And I want to, we, we kind of skipped over it when we went through this, but we're talking about these this thunderings and lightnings. What are thunderings and lightnings, prophetically, would you guess? When thundering and lightning is going on, what are you thinking? What's that? There's a storm coming. And that's the, that's the story of Revelation. There's a storm coming. Um, before we get to that wonderful chapter where we win in the end, oh, I, we win in the end, um, there's some storms coming. Uh, and that is the story of Revelation. There's a lot of storm. Uh, and before we get to the good stuff, we've got to go to the bad stuff. And, and unfortunately, um, that's accurate. Um, so uh, I want to talk just very briefly uh, about the structure of Daniel, it's, it, or uh, of Revelation, it's structured like Daniel. Um, if you remember, we went back uh, when we st- did Daniel the beginning of last year. We we got to chapter uh, seven and went through the end, and it was the prophetic portion of it. Right? There was a literal historical thing, and then and then there was the the prophetic history, and um, it went through in three cycles. Right? He went through kind of what was going to happen. Briefly, and then he went back through two more times through the same period and, and discussed in more detail certain elements of that. And that's going to be what Revelation does. There's, we're going to begin a, 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 a section here uh, that starts, uh, goes up through chapter 11. That's going to be the, the first section. He's going to start back over in chapter 12 through 18. So he's going to go back through the same time period. Uh, and then, then we're going to see a very brief uh, at 19 and 20, and then the, the wrap-up at the end, of course, 21 and 22, which is not really about history. It's about judgment uh, and, and heaven and all that. So let's go to chapter 6. We're just going to read the first eight verses, and we're going to do our best to try to get through these. Uh, this is the opening of the... I did my, found my scroll that I did here. It's a wonderful scroll here. So... Um, and we talked about how the seven seals were one after the other. So you open it up. I'm not sure. I'm not going to try it because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not going to work if I tried it. So I'm just going to leave it looking nice like that. So in uh, verse 1 he says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat to take peace from the earth, and the people would kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. 
And when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked and beheld a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a pale horse. In the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And the power was given over them for forth of the earth to kill with the sword and hunger and death by the, uh, and by beasts of the earth. That's some pretty foreboding stuff right there, isn't it? Now, what in the world is all this? He's got these crazy horses and... Uh, so we're going to uh, look at the first seal here, and we want to look at the picture. Now, <clears throat> we've got a white horse. What is a horse, and why white? From, from what we got, we're going to get a lot out of these two verses. What's a horse a symbol of? You suppose? Okay. Warriors of war. Okay. It's a, it's a symbol of war. Um, and specifically, what we're going to be looking at, uh, in this, at this point in time, there are only a few world powers. Egypt is no longer world power. Greece is no longer world power. They've been absorbed into Rome. The only other rival for... It would be like, kind of like going back to the 80s. There was us and there was the Soviet Union, right? China wasn't really much and there was basically us too. So, so if you think about it like that, this, this time period has Rome and then it has Persia. Persia was kind of their border at this point. Persia likes elephants. That's what their cavalry was. And um, that's why Persia never became much because elephants are not good in battle. <laughs> If, if you thought of cavalry, you thought of Rome. So what we're going to be looking at is four pictures of Rome at war. And we are going to be looking at, uh, as and we're going to be referring to this book, it's, uh, this is one of three actually. I will either quote or refer to a lot of it, uh, not exclusively, but uh, it's called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And that's what we have here, is, is we're, we're looking at uh, but but we begin with white. What is white the symbol of? Do you suppose? Okay, in in a spiritual sense, if I was talking about war, what would I be talking about? Oh, you like like a white flag. To the Roman, it was victory. You rode a white horse when you entered. The, in fact, it was punishable for anybody but the Caesars to ride a white horse. Um, it, was, it was the symbol of, uh, uh, of conquest. In fact, that's what we read here, don't we? We read out, uh, he, we said, uh, he who sat on him had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Right? That's, the, that's the picture we have here. So it is the picture of victorious Rome. So beginning from when John is writing this, John is writing this around 96 they're under persecution under a guy by the name of Domitian. He's not going to last much longer. And a guy is going to um, come uh, next. It will be one piece. Unfortunately, he, he'll be peaceful, but he's only going to live two years. Um, 
but we have we have this victory and I want to uh, this is a guy uh, by the name of Trajan so Nerva is going to be the next guy he's going to he's going to die after two years and it be, Nerva begins this line it's called the Nervan dynasty and his heir is Trajan so in 98 Trajan will take over and Trajan is an interesting guy um, and beginning from Trajan we are going to see conquest uh, and, and a number of things that have to do with these pictures. Now, in fact, I want to read. Now, the, the, the reason I picked this book, first of all, it's the foremost author. He's not always correct in his dates or his numbers or things, but, like, uh, but he's considered the, uh, this is what his life's work was. This was published, uh, not this particular copy, but was in 1776. So while everybody else was worried about something else, he was writing about the Roman Empire. Uh, but uh, I want to read a little bit um, of uh, this. And, and what I like about this is he was an atheist. And he has no idea. Uh, Edward Gibbon does not have any idea that he is writing things that confirm the book of Revelation, even though he did not like Christianity. Uh, so, so I want to read, and I'll, I'll try not to, to do too much of this, but just some brief things. When, when we come up with things where he just so epitomizes something in the scripture. I think it's interesting. He says, Yet the success of Trajan, however transient, was rapid. The degenerate Parthians, broken by internal discord, fled in front of his army. He descended the river Tigris in triumph from the mounts of Armenia to the Persian Gulf. He enjoyed the honor of being the first and the last of Roman generals to navigate that sea. He ravished the coasts of Arabia. Trajan flattered himself that he was even coming to the border of India. Every day the astonished Senate received the intelligence of new names, new nations that acknowledged his power. They were informed that the kings of the Bosporus, the Colchos, the Iberia, Albania, Ashan, and the Parthian monarch himself accepted their diadems from the hands of the emperor. That is incredible conquest. I mean, to go as far as India, and every day the Senate is getting news. Every day, news is coming in. This is a new place that is now Roman. And this is the picture of conquest. And, and as he says, there's never been a conquest like this. In fact, Augustus, Augustus, the, the first Augustus, uh, Octavian, the, the guy who's emperor when, when Jesus is born, said, you should not try to go beyond the Euphrates. You won't be able to control it, right? And in fact, that's exactly what happens as he, he talked about the transient nature of, of Trajan. Right? That means it didn't last long. So he dies, uh, and he has a successor. Um, and we find in, in this white horse another thing of peace. Right? White is also peace. And that's what comes with victory. Right? That's why we, we want victory is because peace comes with it. Um, and so we have his successor, Hadrian, and then after him, Antoninus Pius. Uh, and uh, they, uh, I'm, I'll just refer to it, but he goes through a, a, a kind of a lengthy quote talking about the peace that comes with these two. They, they backed up the empire, back up to the Euphrates, like, like had always been. But they did so, as they did so, they 
the the places that were beyond their borders started coming actually to the emperors to solve their disputes, what would they call the barbarians, actually started saying, can you settle our disputes between, in their foreign countries? Um, that's how noted uh, Rome was for their law and for order in their empire. That, that barbarians would, would say... We can't, we can't solve this between us. So, um, and what would be um, the third picture, what comes with peace and victory is, of course, prosperity. And um, so, after, uh, after Hadrian, so Marcus Aurelius is then the son of Antoninus Pius. He's really the last of the line. There's a, there's a couple more short-lived guys in this line. Um, but, um, but these are the, these were the great ones. Um, and we do have a picture of prosperity under these two. Prosperity went throughout everywhere. In fact, a lot of places liked Rome coming in because that meant... What were the things that Rome brought with them? What's that? Infrastructure. Infrastructure. Security. Security. Yep. All these. Uh, a secure society makes for a prosperous society, right? There's there's orders. There's there's commerce laws, and and, and I know we we think of the the brutality of Rome, and a lot of these guys were very brutal. Some of these some of these men were persecutors of Christians. Um, Hadrian was not, but uh, these two, Marcus Aurelius and Antoninus Pius, were. Uh, Trajan was. And so we we look at that and we might go, well, those weren't nice guys. No, but while Christians suffered in one hand, they they also were more prosperous in other ways. Um, So so there there were benefits. Uh, Prosperity comes. Uh, You had, like you said, infrastructure, uh, architecture, Culture. Uh, so, so there's a lot of things that happen. Well, I want to look at one strange picture. What is in in this original uh, or in these first two verses? There is one odd picture. He talks about Rome, but what is, is there's one thing that doesn't seem to fit Rome. What is Rome? What is a Roman soldier known for? What is his identifying characteristic or feature? If you think of a Roman soldier, what do you think of? Oh yeah, okay. The the the, the that would be like a centurion's. Those were those were actually dress helmets. They did not wear those in war. Those were what those are what they wore in victory. Yep, that's what you think of. What a sword, the gladius, the gladius. What is this guy holding? A bow. That is odd. What's that? Right, so I want to back up to this bow here. Um, Nerva is the first of this line. And this is interesting. Nerva is the first emperor who was Roman by citizenship, but not by ethnicity. He's Greek. And not just any Greek, but he is born... Uh, on Crete. Crete is where Rome got their archers from. 
Crete was known for their archery. I read a, a, a thing on them. Uh, there's a, a, another book. It was written by a guy by the name of Nick Fields, and he, he wrote about a battle, the Battle of Syracuse. And um, in 300 B.C., the, our, our bow hunters in here will like this. This is interesting. In 300 B.C., they already had composite bows. They laminated wood with layers of sinew, so like tendons. And then they would shave off a horn and, and, and put into that layer with, with these fibers, essentially like fiberglass, and layer that, and layer, 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 layer this. And then, so, so you could not get close to them. They had way more distance. While your, your bow would snap, they had a, a laminate to, uh, layered bow. Um, interestingly enough, these are the, the archers that were from this island that were in King David's special corps. They were from Crete. They were Phoenicians. Um, and this is where Nerv is from. And this is a coin of his. Uh, on the back of his coin... He selected, because he's Greek, uh, so you had your face on the front of the coin and you had something on the back that signified something. He picked, he he chose a Greek, not a Roman god or goddess. It was Athena. And there's a picture of her pulling a bow from her quiver. It might be hard to see up there, but it's it's interesting. And so this is a picture. God is saying this is a picture of some... Some things that are going to come. Rome is going to be victorious. We, we turn then to the next one. Verse 3 and 4. It says, When he opened the second seal, I heard a, another living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So, um, so we have a red horse. Now, when you think of war and red, what do you think of? War. What's that? Mars. If I thought of red, I think of blood. Now, all war is bloody. Doesn't make a difference if you're under a white horse or a whatever color horse. All, all, it's death, right? So, what's the difference? Why, why, why would this one be called? Uh, Red, there's there's something interesting. What is interesting about the death here? In in this verses, what is significant? He talks about people killing one another. This is a different stage of the Roman Empire. This follows that that great line. Um... Following these, uh, that we just we just read a, a time period in which six or seven emperors, oh six, there's seven emperors of of the Nervan line. The first six all died of natural causes. That that's the only time in Roman history that ever happened. That's a time of peace. I mean, we begin. Immediately following, the last one dies. That, that was what in, in 192. That's called the year of five emperors. <laughs> the year of five emperors, that's not a good year to be an emperor. 
I don't want to be an emperor in 192. It begins a time period from 192 to 285, almost the exact same number of years as the previous dynasty, which had seven emperors. There's 35 emperors. Wasn't that a time period when they were going between, should there be an emperor or should there be a senate? Uh, no, that was kind of, well, the Senate was pretty much defunct by this period. They were a figurehead. And, and Augustus, uh, Augustus at, the, at the time of Christ is the one that really first started making it. The emperor, you're, the time period you're talking really the, was kind of in flux between Julius Caesar. That's where they were vying. In fact, it's the Senate that assassinates Julius Caesar. And, and there'll be more assassinations prompted by the Senate throughout this whole time period. That's true. They're getting less and less power. Um, in fact, there's coming a point in time where most of the senators won't even live in Rome anymore. Um, <clears throat> but um, they're, they become figureheads and you know rich guys that just live off of the thing. But, but 35 emperors in about 90 years... Um, only three were emperors for more than 10 years in this whole time period. Half of them, their reign is measured in months or days. This is how they die. 28 of them are murdered or died in a civil war action. Three die in a noble battle. That would be with you know, outside sources. Three died with illness and one was struck with lightning. Just kind of the odd, odd guy there. Yeah. So this is a period of civil war. It is bloody. And what would you expect of the populace of this time period? What do you expect of a of a people? I want to read to you, if I can find my glasses, there we are, about the people. This is just uh, in Alexandria. And this is during, during this period. It says, uh, after the captivity of Valerian, uh, his son relaxed the authority of the laws and the Alexandrians, so Alexandria, Egypt, abandoned themselves to ungoverned rage of their passion. Their unhappy country was the theater of civil war which continued... Uh, more than 12 years, and that was just in this particular city. All intercourse uh, was cut off between the quarters of this city, and the street was polluted with blood. Every building was converted to a castle, nor did this subside until a considerable part of Alexandria was irretrievably ruined. He goes through here and, and, and talks about numerous other places where this was all happening. The interesting thing is that the populace follows... Well, I don't know. Does the populace follow... <laughs> it's like a chicken or an egg. Does, does the populace follow their ruler, or does the ruler rule the way he is because he comes from the populace, and this was their attitude? You know, I, I don't... Sure, you know, you look at our rulers today. You look at our, our, our politicians. Are, are, are the politicians the source of the wrong, or is it just the fact that our politicians come from the people, eventually. They're people in, in a society, and if this is the way society is, do we expect them 
You know, we, we talk about our great debt, right? Oh, our, our, our government is driving up debt. We talk about that? What is the situation of people's personal finances? We live in debt. Do we expect to, our, our leaders to do more than what is the populist character? We shouldn't because they are citizens. And the same thing is true in Rome. They're bloody. The people are bloody. Uh, and, and it's a different time period, and it comes out of this prosperity. Well, um, so we get civil war. Uh, we get personal violence. want to move on to the third seal here. says, he opened the fourth seal and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. Or excuse me, third seal. Uh, when he opened the third seal, I, I heard the, the living creature say, come and see. So I looked and beheld a black horse and he who held a pair of scales on his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Interesting. So what is the picture? We have war, something to do with war. What is what is the picture here? Okay, well, th- that's the artist's rendition. So I don't know about any locusts that would be there. This is just a imaginative thing. But but what would you? Famine. Famine. Okay. The. Wars cost money. Um, and so you're, you're going to find after this, uh, at, at the close of this time period that we just talked about, we, we go into a new time period. And when all these things end, we find that there was almost no money in the Roman treasury. Well, if you've got to finance things, and you don't have a lot of silver coins to pass out to people, what do you start doing? What do you do? How do you pay your soldiers? What's that? Allow them to loot. Okay, so that's certainly one of the things they, they allowed them to loot. Tax the people. Okay, that's one of the things they did. Uh, heavy, heavy, heavy taxes. Now, one of the things that's happening, another thing that's happening during the Civil War period is, is if you want to become the, one of those lucky few emperors uh, to reign for six months or whatever, uh, you have to assassinate the guy. That, now, you use the military to do that, so you have to bribe the military to support you. Uh, so, so you're looting the, the, the treasury even more. So that's going on. All of this is contributing to, to the poverty of, of Rome. The other thing you do is you devalue your currency. How do they devalue their currency? Do you suppose? Because you have to give them coins. If we have paper, you can do that. But if you have to hand out coins, which is what they did. How do you do that? How do you devalue your currency? Make it smaller. Mm-hmm. Smaller. You, 
cheaper materials. So instead of silver, they were handing out silver or gold-plated tin. Right? It, it's not as precious. And so you get what, what happens. What's the next thing that happens in a society? Is the very next thing. Inflation. Inflation. Um, there is a period where there was inflation of over 2,500% within one year. And he talks about, and you see this, he's weighing out the scales. What are the scales representing? Why scales? What are scales used for? Measurement of commodities. We're talking about rationing. Is is it is it's death of of an empire because of their wars. And and this extreme rationing. Um, yeah, I want to read to you a little bit. As Gibbon writes, let's see here. He says, a long and general famine was the calamity of a more serious kind. It was inevitable consequences of looting and oppression which um, produced the present hope or it it destroyed the uh, hope of future harvests. Famine is almost always followed by disease and the effect of scanty and unwholesome food and other causes must soon contribute to the plague which from the 250, uh, year 250 to the year 260 uh, raged without interruption. We're we're actually going to get into the the, the pale horse. The pale horse and the black horse go hand in hand. Uh, but I want to, um, as we look at this, this period, um, there is in history a little bit of, he talks about the, the wheat, the price of the wheat. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Um, that means nothing to us. But that is so inflated, um, there, uh, there's some documents that talk about what things cost. And so, uh, historical records show eventually, so a, a court for, for a denarius had been a day's wage. Um, by this point, they, were, they had to get paid, because of inflation, 25 denarii a day. <laughs> that's, that's imagine, imagine all of a sudden to, to, to make it to survive, your, your salary had to increase 25 times just to be able to, to buy bread. You know, you're making, wow, I, I make a million dollars a year now. But what? what? But what does it produce? It, its purchasing power is barely able to, to let you live. That's the type of inflation. So they could buy a quart for a denarius, or, or for uh, for a denarius at some point during this process. Uh, it gets so bad that they would buy um, they could buy nine quarts of grain for five denarius. That's even worse. And that's 
a quart. How much is a, a, a quart of grain? How much bread is that going to? So, so one-fifth of your salary for a day to, to give your family bread for about a couple of days? Three or four or five days? That, that is scarcity. So what do you do? What do you do when, when you start living like that? You start looking for alternative ways to eat, don't you? And we get into barley. He talks about eating barley. That's horse food. And don't touch the oil and wine. Don't, don't abuse it, in other words. He says, don't harm it. Don't abuse it. That's luxury. You use that very sparingly, if you have it. Because there's almost none of it. You can't afford it. So we get into the pale horse. Um, it says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and I beheld a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death. Hades, or the grave, follows with him. And the power was given over them, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with the sword and hunger and death, and by beasts of the earth. And we read one quote that kind of has to do with it. Now, I want to... He talks about a pale horse. This is the word chloros. What do you think of when you hear chloros? Bleach. Bleach. Yeah, you ever seen bleach in a container? It's, a, it's, not, it's not pale white. It's, it's like a... Pale, sickly yellow. Uh, if you think of the word disease, that's what you're thinking of. That's a that color. Who's looking for food? You've had, during this time period, you've had wars. Wars destroy land, land destroys crops. So you have less food. You have enemies who have come, and, and all sorts of things have happened. You have people that, that can't afford things because they have no money. They've been taxed outrageously. Who's looking for food? Everybody? And? Okay. You know, and the thing that people don't realize, well, some people don't realize that, especially a civil you know, they just think about the soldiers out there. So it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You know, women, children, you know, yep. everybody pays the price because they get run over and they're sick or they're starving or they're whatever. And, you know, it always happens usually on the side where the war is. Yeah. You know, so the people who aren't at that spot or in that location don't realize how the devastation is. True. Yeah. But yep. it affects everybody. It does. Well, if people are starving, who else is starving? Animals. And you will notice that in these time periods, predators and scavengers get brave. And wild animals are hungry, too. What, you don't have grain. You want to eat barley. Well, what happens when you get through the barley? What are you going to start looking for to eat now? Huh? Your horse? Okay. Now your horse is gone. Now what are you going to eat? You keep going down. Till you're eating scavenger birds. And you're eating rats. You're eating bats. Hello. 
we're going there. So let me read to you. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about this famine. It talks about unwholesome food, lower quality food. He goes through some statistics that I won't bore you with. Uh, there are some statistics. I don't know if they're accurate or not, but it talks about a pestilence. It's called the Cyprian Plague. It's one of the worst in history. At one point in time, 5,000 people a day in the city of Rome died. Now, that would be at the peak. We'd understand that. He says, but he goes through some statistics of Alexandria and, and, and some of the more populous cities. And he says, applying this authentic fact to the most correct tables of mortality, it proves that more than half of the people of Alexandria perished. And we could venture to extend that analogy to other provinces. We would suspect that war, pestilence, and famine had consumed in only a few years half of the human species. That's an exaggeration because it's based on faulty statistics, which we know. We know statistics tend to initially be higher. You know, if we go back to 9-11, we thought 5,000 people died in, in the Twin Towers, and we found out that it was about half that, right? Uh, also, we know that pestilence affects populated areas far worse than rural areas. If we look at, if he's estimating half, and we know that it's significantly probably less than that, what is the Bible's estimate? About a fourth. That, that sounds pretty close. So, uh, yeah, I haven't been advancing my slides, and I don't think this is going to work now, so that's okay. That's okay. It's not that vital. But um, it's an interesting thing I read um, that this plague is considered by some to be the first jump either of measles, smallpox, or Ebola from an animal to a human. Now imagine what that would do. In reading... Revelation. We, we talked about premillennialism and how, how premillennialism talks about the future and everything is about to happen. So anything that happens, they, they look, ah, this is it. So you can guess, given the last year, what everybody thinks is the pale horse. Please. Please. Already. The majority of us probably know two or three people all elderly who have passed away from this. Okay. Imagine if... What's that? The fine elderly. 70 or more. Okay, because the ones I know are less. Really? Okay. But that's only two cases. Okay. Imagine if you knew one or two people in every family. That's a fourth... <coughs> That's a person or two out of every family, not out of your entire circle of 300 people that you know. This is devastating. 
it, and this is not just fun with history as we wrap up. I want to talk about what this means to the churches. We've talked about the, the value of this book is not just to go, wooey, look at the history, that's pretty cool. But it's the value that it's going to present to the churches. He's saying, get ready for some thundering and lightning. Get ready for some awful stuff that's going to happen. As God is exacting some revenge on Rome, it's not going to be pretty. And it's going to affect Christians too. We can't nicely separate, as God deals with the human race, we can't nicely separate Christians and say, okay, I'm going to keep you over here. Now, he does that sometimes. He told Philadelphia, I'm going to kind of keep you a little bit separate. But there's, there's no suggestion that no one in Philadelphia died of the plague. It's interesting that it is called the Cyprian Plague. Who is Cyprian? He's a bishop. He's a bishop in Carthage. He's one among being a bishop, he also records a lot of the details of of what this plague looked like. I mean, how it manifested and what it actually looked like on a person. Um, he says, um, I, I tried to edit some of his language. The translations are crazy. I want to read a little bit of what Cyprian wrote. As we go through this, I want you to contrast with what we've talked about, uh, the worst symptom you know, that we've talked about for the last year. And I want you to think about what they saw. This trial, in which the bowels are in constant flux and dissipate physical strength, a fire starting in your marrow, it forments into sores in the back of your throat. Your stomach is shaken with continual vomiting. The eyes are on fire, and in some cases the limbs are taken off because of your infection. Weakness and maiming of the body, result of the inability to walk, deafness, blindness, Pretty gross. It is profitable as a proof of faith. What a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind against so many onsets of devastation and death. What sublimity to stand tall amid the desolation of the human race and not to lie prostrate with those who have no hope in God but rather to rejoice and to embrace the benefit of the occasion that in so bravely showing forth our faith and by enduring suffering, we go forward to Christ by the narrow way that Christ trod so that we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. If only we had Cyprian here today to describe the horrors that are going on around us over the last year. He would laugh. The church did not lie idle. It did not close its doors. In the midst of a pandemic that took one-fourth of the population of the known world, 
And he describes it as an evidence of faith that they had the opportunity to die. Not acting like the rest of the world around them. Wow. And so it is called the Cyprian Plague. I mean, this wasn't written so we can go, wow, what an amazing prediction this is. It's written so, so Christians can understand that we need to be different. Amidst all these, not just calamities, but amidst the, the nature of humanity that they see around them. The civil war, the bloodiness of, of the populace destroying themselves. And Christians said, we're going to have to remain different. We're going to have to, and they did. During this period of time, they were different. Sadly, once they're free, they weren't. While they were suffering, they were different. Any thoughts as we close? Okay, we're dismissed. <laughs>